Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast. Here to amplify diverse voices in media, I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed on Apple Podcasts as well as every other podcatcher out there. You can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreview.com, which has full links to the show notes and guests. If you wanted to follow the podcast on social media, which would be great, you can do that at About Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and youtube.com slash abouttreview. And lastly, if you want to support the show, you can do that by clicking the support tab on the website. There's a direct PayPal link as well as an Amazon wish list, which has a couple little things that would really help out the studio. So this week is another solo episode, again, because of crazy scheduling and trying to get two adults in the same room at the same time when we're crazy busy is tough. So uh, hopefully I will not go insane like I normally do on solo episodes. Uh, On this week's episode, there will be reviews for Harriet, Jojo Rabbit, Terminator, Terminator, Dark Fate, and Parasite. So definitely stick around for... Reviews for all four of those. Before we get into that, we'll go to the original theme song created by Damon Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. To get ourselves a treat. going right into the first review of this week's episode, and that is for the movie Harriet, which is directed by Casey Lemons and directed or produced, sorry, directed by Casey Lemons, written by Gregory Allen Howard, and uh, also Casey Lemons did the screenplay. This film stars Cynthia Erivo as the titular Harriet Tubman. Now, what is interesting about this film right off the bat, so Harriet Tubman for a lot of people, uh, let me put on my John's history hat for a moment. When people think of Harriet Tubman, they think of ancient history. They think that this happened so long ago and, oh my gosh, the Underground Railroad was so long ago. Thank goodness we got past that and blah, blah, blah. All of those things. Here's the thing. Uh, I am a historian. I'm also a genealogist. When people tell me, when they're talking about Harriet Tubman, and their scope of time is so skewed, I constantly have to educate them. And so basically, one of the things to keep in mind with this Harriet Tubman story, both in this movie and in real life, she died in the 20th century. She died in 1913 and was born around 1822. So 1913, when you really think about that, some people have great-grandparents, you know, who maybe were close to that, you know, or maybe not necessarily that old, because that is definitely super old. But, for example, my grandma turned 96 this year. She was born in 1923, 10 years after Harriet Tubman died. So to put this in context, it is very important when talking about historical biopics like that, or like this movie, this historical event, 
And Harriet Tubman's life was not that long ago. I really want to drive that home for people to realize these things when they're talking about films like this. So that being said, so this movie Harriet, this is the first movie outside of 1978's uh, They Called Her Moses film with Cicely Tyson. This is the first movie we have had about Harriet Tubman. And the 1978 movie was kind of a TV movie similar to Roots, how it was kind of a multi-episodic movie, to use that kind of term. So realistically, as far as a feature film, this movie, Harriet, is the first. And it is 2019. That is a problem. That definitely is something that is not okay. And so going into this film... I was a little bit conflicted for, for a couple different reasons. One, as, as a lot of these movies kind of come out every couple years, you know, we get Birth of a Nation, we get 12 Years a Slave, now we get Harriet. When it comes to movies about American slavery, and when it comes to movies about the suffering from that time period of the well, 18th through 20th century, well, and now, if you really want to get into it, but that is different, you know, there are these words that get thrown around like trauma porn, and do we need to see another slave movie? Do we need to see these constant depictions of things? It is similar also, on the kind of flip side of the coin, World War II movies. Every year, it seems like we get a new World War II movie, either directly about the Holocaust or tangentially related to the Holocaust or things that led up to the Holocaust. And so I fully understand when people are hesitant to see another movie about certain historical events. That is totally valid. Mental health is very important, especially going into movies that can very much be a trigger for a lot of people. So with Harriet, I had all of those trepidations going into this film. I was very, very glad that this story was being told, that this character, this real life, not even character, this larger than life woman was getting her just dues and getting a feature film with a stacked cast, Emmy Award, or Tony Award winning Cynthia Erivo as Harriet. So I was glad that that was happening, but at the same time, I, I, I was very trepidatious about this. So in this film, we pretty much just pick up with Harriet and she is about, I want to say in their like late 20s, you know, when we first kind of start her story and it goes right up until the end of the Civil War. And then we get some little capsules at the end of kind of what happened after that. But really, this is about her introduction, Harriet Tubman's introduction to the Underground Railroad and to this idea of the work that she could do to help her people who are still in bondage in parts of the South. So Harry Tubman was born in Dorchester County, Maryland, again, around 1822. Shocking. Records are not always that great back then. I wonder why. Uh, so in that part of the country, she would, you know, make trips down South, you know, a little bit further, but she would also go North to Philadelphia, which is about a hundred miles. And this was on foot. Or possibly, you know, stowing away in a wagon or something here or there. 
Harriet Tubman's life deserves a huge, big-budget, feature-length documentary. With this film, because it really just wanted to focus on, you know, a couple decades, you know, of her life and of her work, I feel like that there were parts that they were they they were not really able to go into as much. And that could just be me being somebody who loves documentaries and also a historian and genealogist, where I wanted kind of a more in-depth picture of her life and her world in in this film. So I, even watching this film, I, I struggled with a few different things. One thing I did not struggle with is Cynthia's performance. She is great. She is really, really good. I mean, she is a Tony Award-winning actress, so that is not really surprising at all. But she was really solid. You get, you know... Uh, cast with Leslie Odom Jr., who is very recognizable, you know, as William Still. We get a lot of other folks in this film, you know, in different roles. Some people we see for a few minutes here and there. Some people have bigger roles. Janelle Monae is in this, and her character is essentially kind of made up for the film, which anytime you do a historical biopic, I recognize that you have to do that. You have to kind of throw in some people that somebody like that person could very well have existed. Was it that person? No. Even the son of the slave owner in this film, uh, Gideon is his name and portrayed by Joe Allen. Same type of thing. Like the actual slave owner son that Harriet, you know, for the family that she was enslaved to, he did exist, but there are not really any records of him. So his character for the film is definitely kind of hyped up and is used in different ways. You have to have that type of creative license when telling stories like this because records are tough to come by. There were some oral histories back then. There were some written histories. But for the most part, you have to kind of ride a fine line of creating stories or developing characters to push your story forward. So all that being said, the framing of this film was also one of the things that I had an, I had an issue with. So Harry Tubman suffered from an injury that she got when she was really young. She was hit in the head by either two pound iron or some, something heavy. And it was thrown at somebody else and she was in the way and it bashed her in the head and split open her skull. From that point through the end of her life, she suffered debilitating Headaches. She talked about that in biographies that were written from people who interviewed her in the 20th century, which again, I, I have to drive that again home again. This is somebody who there were real interviews with this person. There are documented conversations with Harriet Tubman. This is not ancient history. These are not just oral tradition stories that were passed down. Like, no, we have written records of Harriet Tubman. We have written records of conversations and books that were done about her. Anyway, I digress. Um, so she suffered from debilitating headaches. They believe that she also might have had narcolepsy or epilepsy due to that type of head trauma. And she talks about, in her own words, she would go into these kind of visions, into these different states of being where she thought, you know, she uh, basically, trying to think, she described it as visions from God, 
And those were what directed her towards certain things she did in her life. So that is real. That is legit. That happened. That injury happened. The way she described her feelings, like those are her words. The way that they did this, the way that they portrayed this, I should say, in the film was almost like a spidey sense. It was almost this precognition, precognitive ability that she has where she would go into one of her quote unquote fits, you know what they call it. She would see this vision of either somebody chasing her or somebody being chased or escaping. And then when she would come out of her fit, about 30 seconds later, that exact thing is happening. That was a little bit tough for me. Because, yes, she did describe them as visions from God. She did talk about those. In this, it basically just drives it home of like, nope, she basically had superpowers. And she was precognitive and she could do these things. That was a little bit odd to me. And I feel like there was a... There could have been a way to to show that, but not have it be like she has a vision and that exact thing happens. That was a little bit odd. And like I said, it took a little bit of of getting used to for that. But the base of it is is true. So again, through this movie, we get it while she is going through the Underground Railroad, while she is freeing people, she goes to Philadelphia. The Fugitive Slave Act gets passed, which basically allowed freed or escaped slaves from the South who had made it North, who were living and possibly thriving, depending on what they were doing. The Fugitive Slave Act, when that came down, it allowed people from the South to go up North and take people back down South. So this was detrimental, especially to the Underground Railroad. So it talks about that. The timeline is a bit skewed as far as from the real timeline of when that happened to how they portrayed in the film and the things that were going on in that timeline, or that time frame, I should say. So they go over those major parts. We see Harriet Tubman in the Civil War, which is true. She did, she was a part of the Civil War. She did lead people on raid. She was a spy. She was a nurse. Like, those are all real things. And so throughout the film, we get Cynthia giving this great performance But I felt the whole time this was basically almost like a TV movie stretched into a feature length film. And one of the things that did not help the film is there's like a four bar musical progression that we hear the exact thing like six or seven times. And that it gets jarring after a while. Whereas opposed to other movies where, you know, they kind of twist a theme or there there are some musical notes. Danny Elfman does it all the time in his films, you know, where there are some musical notes that carry on through the film. This is the exact like four bars where it is very kind of melodramatic and kind of cheesy, just like a dun, 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 dun. And it just has this saccharine sweetness to it. But we get it. So many times, basically leading into either a big speech of hers or leading into a big revelation. And it kind of cheapens those moments. And so that that, that just kind of took me out of it. The other thing, speaking of the music, so this is all kind of traditional, you know, music, nothing really contemporary until one main scene where she is helping some slaves get from one place to another. And Nina Simone, Sinner Man starts playing 
And it is jarring to say the least. That song is tied to a lot of different things from when it came out, activism, women's rights. So I understand the connective tissue to make it part of Harriet, but to have one contemporary song right in like the second act of this film. And then we never go back to that again. We go back to, you know, the historical period piece type of music was just a really odd choice. And for a movie that I was having a hard time connecting with, that was another thing that just kind of took me out of it. So yeah, uh, like I said, I, I kind of struggled with that a little bit. This story and Harriet Tubman deserves all of this. It deserves the movie. It deserves to have a great cast. It deserves to have Casey Lemons, who is a black woman directing this. She did Eve's Bayou, which is continually ranked as one of the most important films directed by a black person ever. Eve's Bayou is incredible. The writer was black, along with Casey Lemons. The producers were black. It has an all-black cast, and yet there was still controversy with Cynthia being cast because she is British. Okay? You know, this is kind of that flip side. I talked about this on a recent episode about Dolomite. How Dolomite is a story about African Americans with a predominantly African American cast. Eddie Murphy was a producer, and yet the writer and the writers and director were white men, and so optically you were like, oh, this this feels a little bit weird. Harriet is the complete opposite. Harriet has a black woman director, uh, the writer it was herself and Gregory, like the producers were black. The cast is predominantly black. Like this is, this, this feels and looks right. But there was still this, this disconnect that I had with it, maybe because of just the other performances. I'm not quite sure, but there was an odd thing that kept disconnecting me from the film, which I struggled with because the source material I do connect with. I mean, my family, my dad's side of the family was enslaved around the same place where Harriet Tubman was and around the same time period where she was doing her things. So that is part of my history. And it right there, like it is, I have connective points to this story and to stories like this. But something about this, I was just, I was struggling with. Maybe it was the music, that like four bar progression that just kind of kept undercutting these really emotional moments. And this also felt very much like a play in certain ways where it was kind of the the park and bark, you know, where they call it, where they walk to a point of the stage, they stand there and they give a two minute monologue or five minute monologue. We get a lot of that in this film. And a lot of it is kind of set up by those visions that she has and then she goes into this thing and of course 30 seconds later we see the exact thing so yeah overall though i mean again it feels like i i really hated this movie and that is not the case uh when i was asked to give a quote about this and this is right after i walked to the theater i have had a little bit of time to process it but not very much my quote was relentlessly mediocre and, and I hate feeling that way because I just did not connect with, with this film. And the tones and a lot of it was just, it was so close to being so great, but either the music would undercut it, 
the monologue would undercut it, the time period shift or the location shift. Like, yeah, it was just there were there were little things that I feel like could have been changed. But that is not up to me. Uh, They made this movie and that is that is up to them. And they made those choices. So, yeah, the official rating for the About to Review podcast. If this is your first time listening, there are only three choices. No stars, no letter grades. The three choices are good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something you want to recommend to your friends. You came out of the theater excited to talk about. Bad film was something you came out of the theater and you were like, "Uh, okay, that was a movie, but you were not really too jazzed about it. And ugly is a void at all costs. So Harriet, in my opinion, it has changed on this. The more time that I have had, the more time that I, that has gone by since the screening when we have to give a reaction right away because we have a press representative standing right there at the end of the uh, screening. So my modified uh, review or rating for this film, this is bad. And and I, I hate that. I hate that I have to give it a bad, but I just was not feeling this movie. Um, you know, there was a hashtag this summer when all the controversy was going around that, you know, hashtag Harriet deserves better. I think that the characters in this film, the actors in this film, did well with the material they were given. They did tell a story that is, for some ridiculous reason, we have needed to wait this long to make, even though we get a World War II movie every year. So it was not that. It was just, it was something else, something that I, I cannot quite put my put my finger on. So, yeah, I, I have to give this a bad. Um, yeah, this is something that you pick up, you know, on streaming or something. Or when you get a chance to watch it in the theater, definitely hit me up. You know, I, I want to talk about this film with other people who who do connect with it and kind of see see where those those points are. So, all right. So that was Harriet getting a bad. Moving on to, as I mentioned, a World War II film, Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi, who also wrote this along with Christine Lunens. Um, she actually did the novel that this is based off of, which was, what's it called? Caging Skies. So Jojo Rabbit is a, a film that is hard to watch in, in certain ways. And I say that because Taika Waititi, there's only one other person, I think, in my opinion, who is able to blend humor, drama, satire, and also depression, anxiety, and terror like Taika Waititi does in this film. Oddly enough, I get to talk about that other person later in the show, but for now, Jojo Rabbit. So Jojo Rabbit is this satirical take on kind of the Hitler youth during World War II. And we follow along with a young boy uh, who gives a phenomenal performance, Roman Griffin Davis, as Jojo. So he wants to be a Nazi. He wants to be the best Nazi. And we have Taika Waititi playing Hitler uh, in, in his vision that Jojo, you know, sees and the whole time he is encouraging him, you know, to, to be a good Nazi. And so he goes to camp. Uh, the hard part about this film is how terrifyingly accurate a lot of this feels. So there are many, many books and some documentaries about the Hitler youth phenomenon. And they actually open the film with some video of young people in the presence 
of Adolf Hitler, who you would think was a Beatles concert in the 60s. They are falling over themselves. They're crying. They're fanning themselves. Like there was just such idolatry towards Hitler for certain people around that time frame. When we watch this young boy in this film, Jojo, become fascinated, not become fascinated, has always been fascinated with, with Nazis and Hitler and wants to do everything he can for his country. It is, it is hard. But again, it rides that line of humor and satire where you get Taika Waititi giving a great performance, both physically and through his dialogue of Hitler, you know, saying these awful things, but they are kind of funny. So it rides that satire line. But man, when this flips the switch to drama and when it really gets into the story of Roman or sorry, not Roman, Roman is the actor, Jojo going up to, you know, the upper floor of his house and finding a young Jewish woman in the walls who has been living there, who his mother, Scarlett Johansson, as Rosie, had kind of sequestered away to save her. And we get his constant dilemma of like, okay, uh, you're Jew. I've been told to hate Jews and Jews are the devil, but you're a pretty girl. And this is not what they told me Jews would look like, that they would have horns and they have, they look like snakes and all of these things. But we see it through a child's eyes and we see the way that influences change through a child's eyes. So it is it is a fascinating exploration and such a different take on the stereotypical World War II Nazi movie that we get. Again, it seems like every year. This one is very different. It feels different. It looks different. At the same time, it reminds you of the horrors of World War II. It reminds you of the ripple effects, honestly, that choices had back then. And this gets brutal. A friend and fellow critic, uh, I will not call them out, was sitting next to me at the screening and multiple times I could just hear them just crying while watching this film because this this movie wrecks you in, in a few different parts of the film. And a lot of that comes down to Jojo, you know, this young actor whose innocence and determination in the film, you know, again, it fluctuates, it changes. We see him grow in different ways. Thomas and Mackenzie as Elsa was phenomenal. Scarlett Johansson as Rosie, Sam Rockwell as Captain Kleisendorf, and then Robert Wilson, Alfie Allen, like there are a bunch of people in here, but this is really a movie about the youth and what we see through their eyes. There's another young man in this. Uh, the character's name is Yorkie. The actor is Archie Yates. I love this kid. Like, Yorkie was one of the cutest kids that I have seen in a movie. Like, his lines were great. He just, yeah, he, he was phenomenal. But we still, this is still a World War II movie. This is not a humorous satire film, you know, like Blackadder or, you know, something like that. We're just talking about things happening historical things but with a different twist like this is a world war ii movie that is that is still hard to watch just like all of them are so uh trying to think oh one of the one of the lines that uh hitler 
says to Jojo when Jojo's struggling with these choices and kind of what to do. And Hitler was like, you're 10. Start acting like it. You know, wanting him to basically be an adult at that point. Because again, at that point during World War II and during the height of the Hitler Youth propaganda wave, I mean, you were expected to do everything you could for, you know, Mother Germany at a very young age, no matter what. So when we get those moments, yes, it is a funny line, but when we see those ripple effects as to what happens after, it gets it gets hard. It definitely gets hard. So Taika Waititi, you know, directed this, wrote it, stars in it. Uh, he is he is just so great at handling this type of material. I mean, for those people wondering, you know, he also did What We Do in the Shadows, uh, Thor Ragnarok, as well as Hunt for the Wilder People. His style of being able to blend these different genres seamlessly is a skill that not many people have, and not many people can pull it off um, as successfully as he does. So I am not a big fan of 20th century war movies at all. I just I just do not like them. Uh, I think we get too many of them. So this one was one that I was mainly going to because of Taika Waititi. There are like two more World War II movies coming out in like a matter of weeks that I am choosing not to go to because it just is not something that I'm interested in. So but with this one, I definitely wanted to go because of Taika Waititi and, and I was rewarded for that choice. So my official rating for Jojo Rabbit is also good. So, or not also good. I say also good as if somebody else gave it a good in the studio. But again, I'm talking to myself. Nobody is here. And this is real weird. But Jojo Rabbit gets a good Taika just crushes it again. Uh, again, being able to meld multiple genres successfully. Incredible. Next, Terminator Dark Fate. Um, okay, where, where to begin with this movie? Um, also, on a recent episode, when I talked about Gemini Man, I talked about how 90s action movies were filmed a certain way and they all sound the same and everything. Yeah, this, this Terminator Dark Fate is also that. So this picks up after Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It ignores every movie that was made after that. It ignores the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show. This is a straight sequel to a movie from like 20 years ago. So that in and of itself is interesting. Going not just back to a franchise with a sequel, but going back to a franchise that has been continuing to make things for a while and just wiping it clean and just making the connection between your second film in the series. Bold choice. Uh, so this was directed by Tim Miller, who did Deadpool. So he definitely knows how to do action. We already knew that going into it. This one, I mean, it brings back Linda Hamilton, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we see, you know, a flashback of, you know, another character from Terminator 2 in this. This basically, I mean, nothing is new with Terminator. Basically, we get Mackenzie Davis's character, Grace, coming back from the future to stop Gabriel Luna's character, who is named Gabriel or Rev-9, from killing somebody who, in the future, changes the fate of humanity. Yeah, it is the same movie as those first two. It just, there, there's nothing different or unique other than the style of Terminator 
that Gabriel is and the physical difference. I'm kind of borderline Terminator that Mackenzie Davis is as Grace. Other than that, this is just a pure action movie. It always sounds super cliche when people say like, oh, there was a nonstop action thriller. Yeah, this movie lives up to that cliche to a T. This is a pretty much nonstop action thriller. It starts with like a 20 minute action set piece and never really slows down that much. So that was impressive in and of itself. The storyline of this is paper thin. I mean, very, very thin. And similar to all of the Terminator movies, even the ones that are no longer part of the canon and no longer kind of matter, these movies work until you start to really think about them a little bit more. Even from the first one, the second one, and out of this one, if you can send one Terminator back, why not send 50? Why not send 100? Like, why is it always sending one thing back, being like, oh, all right, putting all our eggs in this basket, this ultimate Terminator is going to do the job, right? Somebody in that pitch meeting at either, what I forget what they call the future company in this, or future thing, the AI, somebody should be like, maybe we should send a backup. Maybe we should do that. They touch on that in a really, really smart way in a flashback in this movie, but that is it. We, we do not really get that again, and it would make so much more sense if they are to do that, or for the good guys, send back three graces, or send back, you know, half a dozen of these folks. But no, we get, we get one good person from the future and one bad person from the future, and they have to fight to help the people in the present. And go. That is your movie. So one thing I really enjoyed, other than the action, which is done really well because Tim Miller knows how to do that, is this takes place, it starts off um, in Mexico, like right by the border. There's a ton of Spanish in this, mainly because Natalia Reyes, you know, is in this as Danny Ramos. Ramos, like she is great. Gabriel Luna, um, he does not speak Spanish um, normally. Like, he can speak a little bit. There, He did some Spanish language uh, interviews and everything kind of leading up to to this and for Ghost Rider on S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, Natalia Reyes, though, you know, is, is fluent. And so seeing a different thing where it is not just L.A., like in the first two, that was nice. There was just kind of a little bit of a twist to be like, oh, look, a different language. Minority, rep- minority representation. Imagine that. We also get, you know, Mackenzie Davis, Natalia Reyes, and Linda Hamilton being absolute badass women in this film. Like this, this is a big spotlight on badass women in in cinema. Does the storyline make sense? Not really. Do the action scenes get a little bit crazy and sometimes hard to follow? Yes. But is it great to see female representation and minority representation in a huge movie like this? Yes. That was definitely nice to see. The other thing, I mean, and I kind of talked about this with with Harriet, how I got a little bit annoyed with a four-bar musical progression. Terminator Dark Fate has that same dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, that we have come to know from Terminator 1 and 2, but we get it seldomly, and we get it kind of modified 
a little bit here and there. So it was not, it was noticeable, absolutely, because that is a very iconic score, but it was not taking away from, from the film. So there are ways to kind of do that successfully. So again, do not think about this one too much. Like when people talk about a popcorn action movie, where you can just go, turn your brain off, be entertained for, what is the runtime on this one? Uh, just over two hours, 128 minutes. Yeah, I mean, this this is pretty much the epitome of doing something like that. The other thing is, so the movie takes place present day, 2019. When we see the future that the character com- the characters come back from, it is 2042. So that means in about 23 years, we're going to have laser pulse rifles and the ability to travel back in time. Uh, when you look at the bell curve of technological uh, advancements, 23 years is a, is a sharp curve if we're going to be able to have that technology. So that was a little bit weird. They, I feel like they could have pushed that back a little bit, especially since they very early kind of established a different timeline than the one that we had come to know from Terminator 1 and 2 because Linda Hamilton... You know, Sarah Connor was like, Judgment Day was supposed to be, you know, X date in 2019 or 2009. I forget. That obviously did not happen. So she was just chilling, preparing for something else. So now that we have a different timeline, they, yeah, it was, just, it was weird that it was only 23 years. Because 23 years, yeah, not, not a long time. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the T-800 uh, Carl as he is called in this, that was the name that he chose, uh, is hilarious at certain moments. When we first get introduced to him, he is talking about living his life for the past 20 years uh, with this you know, woman and her son. And he was like, you know, she thinks I'm really funny and she gets my jokes. And it was like, wait, what? You know, it was just kind of a weird thing to say. As the movie progresses, yeah, Carl is actually really funny. At one point, they go into his bunker where he has hundreds of, of weapons. And Sarah Connor was like, but if you thought, you know, this was averted, why have all of these weapons? And he was like, there was a 74% chance that something like this would happen again. And also, this is Texas. And it was just delivered in that Arnold Schwarzenegger, completely deadpan, T-800 voice, and it sold. Like the theater just, yeah, they loved it. Because that is true. Texas, you can have as many guns as you want for whatever reason. So that was that was just funny. And it was unexpected. So that was something that was uh, interesting for this film. So yeah, so Terminator Dark Fade. Uh, it is a big budget action movie that, yeah, it should be in theaters. Yeah, now. By the time this, mo- by the time this uh, episode comes out, or it comes out in a couple days, depending. So yeah, it is... Crazy. Non-stop action thriller has never been more accurate than for this film. Just do not think about it too much because it all falls apart when you really start to think about why they do what they do. So my official rating for Terminator Dark Fate, this movie is dumb. It, it really is dumb, but I liked it. So I got to give it a good. I mean, this is something where my friends who also love Terminator 2, you know, and cheesy action movies like this is right up their wheelhouse. So I, I will give it a give it a good. All right, last film, last review of the episode. This is Parasite 
by Jun Ho Bong, who is a Korean, South Korean director, writer, producer, uh, just powerhouse. So the films that he has been known for were The Host and Snowpiercer, uh, for the most part. I mean, he has done a lot of other things. One of my favorite things that he did that was from like the early 2000s that never really gets a lot of attention, but it was called Barking Dogs Never Bite. That movie, you know, I'm going to tie it back to Jojo Rabbit and Taika Waititi. Jun Ho Bong is the best director, producer, screenwriter at blending these type of genres where it is a comedy, it is a satire, it is drama, it is anxiety, it is terror, it is horror, it is like all of these types of things, he is able to seamlessly weave together better than any other filmmaker I know right now. And so other than him, it goes like Jun Ho Bong, then Taika Waititi, and then some other people. Just, he, he is tremendous. So with Parasite, uh, his new film, which blew up the festival circuit. Like it, this movie has been getting a lot of attention for months and months and months. So it has a limited theatrical run because it just kind of, this is a tough movie to, to market. So it is going to be tough for people to see it in their local cinema because it might only be there for a couple weeks. But this movie is about a family who is struggling to make ends meet. They live in a kind of a semi-basement house in in this city where when they look out of their windows, they're seeing the sidewalk, which apparently happens a lot in South Korea. I was reading an interview with the director and he talked about they they built that set, but it is based off of real places. And he also did this set in a very particular way, not just with that house where they start, where the family starts. So this is a nuclear family. So husband, wife, son, daughter, who all end up through various ways connected with this very, very wealthy family. So he ends up teaching their daughter, you know, working with her through the, through uh, her English. The daughter ends up helping the young son with his art. The dad ends up being a driver. The mom ends up like they all end up interweaved into this very wealthy family because they essentially they're just conning them to get what they want. They are conning them because they want to get from where they are living in that kind of semi-basement house to this big house to not have to worry about anything. And so, you know, they had pulled little scams here and there, but this is the biggest one for them to really step it up. So they take an interest in this wealthy family and they do everything they can to have themselves entrenched in this family's dealings and to get what they want to get. Through that, (laughs) through that story, we have these really humorous moments because we can tell that the family, yes, they are doing something that is wrong. They are doing something that is bad, but we feel for them, we we can kind of sympathize with them being from where they're coming from. It is like, of course, you would want to do something, anything to help your family get out of that situation. So there are these sympathetic characters, which makes it really complicated when they start doing very bad 
things, when they start to cross lines that you feel uncomfortable even watching. So, and again, with this cast, this is an ensemble cast that works seamlessly together. Not just the family dynamic, but how they interact with the other family, the interactions they have just with one another. Like, this ensemble is is a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. The score for this movie, there are no lyrics to anything. There is not a kind of commercialized song. Like, this is just instrumentals throughout this entire movie. And that really helped kind of layer this film that goes from, you know, kind of light places where like, all right, this family is just trying to get away with little scams because they need to put food on the table to then ramping up to very uncomfortable scenes of what this family is willing to do to get what they want and the sacrifices they are willing to make both personally, professionally, physically, mentally is, is tough. It's definitely tough. The other fascinating thing about this that I had to find out later. So this wealthy family's house that has all of these beautiful open spaces and corridors and just the design of this house was just incredible to just watch. There's some really great scenes where there would be people at the dinner table while other people were going up the stairs and just the, the physicality of it, just the way it was filmed and shot was beautiful. Came to find out the director worked with a production designer and built the entire house. Like they, well, not the entire, they built this entire set based off of his idea for camera movements and blocking as opposed to what an architect normally does, which is living and functionality and, you know, things like that. So this super modern open floor plan was made so that he could do all of the types of camera tricks and blocking that he wanted to do while not having to worry about taking out certain things. That is incredible. The production design of this, the fact that they were able to basically build a set that looks exactly like a house that functionally is a house and you would never know it is, yeah, that is brilliant, brilliant work. So not just with the production design, not just with the music, the actors in this, all of the actors, like none of them skip a beat. None of them feel like, you know, not necessarily they're phoning it in, but everybody there makes such unique choices that that continually kept you engaged with what they were doing. Like I said, even when they start doing bad things, you're like, but I like this character and I, and I want them to succeed in, in certain ways. So, uh, yeah, this film, again, is going to be a challenging one to watch in the theater because it is it is going to have such a limited run. But I highly recommend this, especially if you want to watch a smart, engaging thriller that is unlike anything you have seen in a while. The twists and turns that this film takes while balancing all of those different emotions is, is yeah, just nothing short of a phenomenal. This is one of the best films of the year, flat out. So with that being said, my rating is obviously good for Parasite, directed by Junho Bong. So there we go. That wraps it up for this episode. A quick recap. 
So I had to give Harriet a bad, which I know some people are really going to be upset with me about. I understand that. Hit me up on social media. We can talk about these things. Uh, Jojo Rabbit was good. Brutal, heartbreaking World War II drama through the eyes of the youth. Yikes. Yeah, really, really good. Terminator Dark Fate is a really dumb action comedy that should be the end of this franchise. Let this franchise die. Let it give a thumbs up as it is going down into molten metal like in Terminator 2. Let's let this franchise die. This new Terminator does not bring anything new or different other than more tropes and more things. But if you want to turn your brain off, go for it. So I give that a good. And then Parasite, flat out one of the best films of the year. This, yeah, again, balances emotion like nothing else. The director and writer, Junho Bong, is a force to be reckoned with. So that gate, I gave that a good as well. Uh, upcoming things for the About to Review podcast. So the upcoming Seattle 48-hour horror film project, which I am a proud sponsor of, uh, that is coming up on November 6th. So I should have an episode kind of about those films, and maybe I, I will have the chance to interview a couple folks. It is always kind of tough because it is a very small window for that festival. Uh, the other thing is the Vancouver Asian Film Festival. I will be attending uh, yet again. That will be the weekend of the 8th through the 10th. And then two different panels are happening soon that I will be on. Yes, you, dear listener, can see me in person and see if I do exist or see if I'm just a mask or somebody behind the curtain. Uh, one of those is a panel at the General Assembly uh, here in Seattle with some other local podcasters basically talking about content and what it takes to have your content and use your content in a productive way in podcasting. So I'm looking forward to that. Then the other panel is going to be at the Seattle Film Summit on Sunday, November 17th. And I actually put this panel together. It is a diversity in film criticism panel along with some of my fellow Seattle film critics, uh, Seattle film critics. So Kathy Finnessy, uh, and Renee Sanchez are going to join me on that panel. The links for all of those are going to be in the description below. So make sure to click those and yeah, come and meet me out in person. It is going to be interesting in 2019. I am going to start doing more things like that because after all of my health issues this year, it makes you realize the time is short. So yeah, got to do some things. So yeah, so check all of those out. Uh, AboutReview.com has links to all of those. Follow the podcast on social media at AboutReview, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Support the show by giving a donation on PayPal. That would be great. Or helping out with the Amazon wish list. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts about this episode or any episodes or topics you want to cover, send me an email at aboutreview at gmail.com and I would be happy to discuss those. So for the About to Review podcast, thank you again for listening. I have been your host, that guy named John, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.